0: Where are you from? Austria. How long have you been a cop? Been a cop for 12 years. Father was a cop, brother was a cop, mother was a cop's wife. And I have no hobbies. Good okay. news. You two are booked on the first flight out to Portland tomorrow morning. Now, I want you to locate Crisp's wife and offer her immunity in exchange for a testimony against him. No friends to uh, and this is my case alone. (laughs) He works alone. Not anymore. She's going in undercover as a substitute kindergarten teacher. Not exactly a job for you. Oh, God. Don't worry. I'm going to make it. I just need a minute. I'll be ready in just a minute. I just got... Oh, God. How do I look? Take off the gun. It's a good idea. Get some rest and don't worry. I've been working undercover for a long time. They're six year olds. How much trouble can they be? On second thought. Take the gun. <laughs> gun on the ah, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Mr. Your teacher, Mrs. Hagley, had to go on an important trip for a few days. Where'd she go? That doesn't matter. Did she die? No, Lowell. She went to see someone. Did they die? No, Lowell. Everyone dies, you know. I know, but not for a long, long time. Now, until Mrs. Hagley comes back, we have someone special to help. This is Mr. Kimball, your new kindergarten teacher. Now, let's everybody say good morning, Mr. Kimball. Good morning, Mr. Kimball. Good morning. They're all yours.
1: I'll be watching you. Well, good morning. My daughter, my oldest daughter, has started kindergarten this last week, so that's been a fun transition for our family, and I think that might be what was on my mind as I was getting ready. Also, because uh, this film helps illustrate what we want to talk about this morning, and, uh, you know, this is a a holiday weekend, so when that happens around Hope, we encourage families to worship together. Hope Kids takes the week off, and we we worship together as families, so when that goes on, I typically try to find, you know, movies that are family-friendly and tell good stories, and this is not at all as cute and family friendly as I remember it from when I was growing up. It's actually pretty dark and I can't really recommend that you watch it with your kids later or anybody, honestly. So we clipped around a bunch of stuff and it does help illustrate a point. Now the ridiculous premise of the movie Kindergarten Cop, Arnold Schwarzenegger, plays uh, Detective John Kimball who uh, has to go undercover as a kindergarten teacher because one of the families in this kindergarten classroom is in trouble, in danger because of a case that he's working. They have information that he needs, um, detective movie and all that stuff. And uh, as Silly as that premise sounds, you know, somebody becoming an undercover kindergarten teacher to rescue a family, that story is as old as Jesus himself. God our Father sees our world in trouble, sees that we are overwhelmed by forces that we ourselves cannot overcome, the sin and evil that's a part of the world around us and he wants to rescue us and the way that God does that is not from the outside, God does not, from, you know, some, from on high, all-powerful, do something that is manipulative or, or affecting us from, from heaven or whatever it is. God actually sends his son himself into the world to become one of us, to save us from the inside, God undercover, rescuing us from the inside and not from the outside, This month of August, we've been uh, exploring the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has been part of our uh, month-long series, and it's been extraordinary to see how a lot of the themes that have been repeated, we're actually going to keep touching on today. So uh, if you're joining us for the first time, this is actually, even though we're wrapping up this message series in Isaiah, it's a great week because we're going to recap a bunch of the themes that we've heard again and again this month. And Isaiah was actually a really important book for Jesus when he was doing his ministry. When Jesus Christ was alive and teaching and preaching and uh, doing the things that he was was doing, he quoted from the book of Isaiah almost as much as any other book of the Bible. He quotes the Psalms the most, I think, because there are just more Psalms. And then Isaiah is just right up there, quoting it again and again. And and, and Jesus uses Isaiah to talk about who he was, the Son of God, the Messiah that had been predicted from, Isaiah was written 750 years before Jesus. And, And these are all the things to expect when the Messiah would come. And he uses it to talk about himself. And in fact, the scripture reading that we heard this morning Isaiah chapter 61 is the the passage that Jesus himself selects in Luke 4 to preach his very first sermon. So no pressure, right? What are you preaching on this weekend, Eli? Oh, the same thing Jesus preached about. It's no big deal. So this is Jesus quoting Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4. I want us to read this out loud. It'll be up on the screen. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. So Jesus preaches this as his first sermon. He had just finished 40 days in the wilderness, wandering and being tempted. And then he enters into the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, and he breaks out this scroll of the book of Isaiah and turns specifically here. When he finishes reading that, he hands it back to the attendant and he says, Today in your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled, saying that this is me, I am the Messiah who you've been waiting for. I think one of the interesting things about why, why the book of Isaiah was so important to Jesus and his ministry uh, has a lot to do with, with what was going on in Israel at the time, a movement of God's people that was actually going around in and around the, the, uh, the Jerusalem region while Jesus was alive. Uh, in February, my wife and I get to uh, help lead a trip of people to the Holy Land and to see as many of the sites that we can see of where Jesus walked and his disciples. And uh, if you'd like more information about how to be a part of that trip, late March or late February, early March, just grab me after service or shoot me an email. I'd love to get you the information about that experience. And I'm I'm thrilled. I'm excited to be able to to see these things come to life. And one of the sites I'm I'm probably most excited to see doesn't actually get mentioned explicitly in the Bible. It's the caves of Qumran outside of the Dead Sea where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And we're going to spend, when I'm there, we're going to spend an afternoon at Qumran uh, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And uh, really quick, 1947, uh, a Bedouin shepherd is kind of walking around these caves, with his flock, and he trips over some pottery, and inside are three scrolls that he then tries to sell uh, to a market in Jerusalem, and uh, people start realizing what this actually is, and uh, it's a fascinating story because 1947 in this part of the world was a pretty volatile time, so it took uh, scientists from all over the world, archaeologists, uh, uh, global leaders to try and start an archaeological dig at this site, And, and and over the decades, they have found more than 900 scrolls in over a dozen caves. a whole settlement that they didn't even know existed in this cave system and and 900 different scrolls. That first one, that first scroll that they opened up was a complete copy of the book of Isaiah and they dated that copy to about 350 years before Christ. So here we have a text that was written 700 years before Jesus, and just a few hundred years later, we have an actual copy that that somebody had, and they ended up finding 22 whole copies of Isaiah just in this one location. Whoever was living here at the time, Isaiah was an important book for them. And and then the archaeologists began asking the question, well, why? Who Who was living there collecting all these books? Because that was unheard of in the ancient world that you would have a whole library like this gathered in the middle of the desert where nobody they thought lived. Um, this just this was the archaeological find of the 20th century and they, they've spent uh, uh, decades trying to figure out what was going on there and who was living there at the time and why uh, particularly Isaiah was so important to them. So, At the time of Christ, there were um, several different sects of Judaism going on. And and similar to our day, where in Christianity we have different denominations around, we all believe the same core principles and values of what it means to to follow Jesus and who God is and who Jesus is, and we believe the same things together. We just practice them and interpret them in slightly different ways. Um, The same thing was going on in Jesus' day with uh, with the Jewish people. There were different sects. And the Bible mentions the two most prominent ones in in the New Testament, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the two primary movements of Judaism at the time, the different, the slight differences between them um, really aren't worth getting into, but they were very connected to the government also, like that was a movement of Judaism that was interested in political power, who was in charge, uh, and and so you see Jesus teaching against, speaking out against some of those uh, corrupt practices that they had, but there was a third movement at the time that Jesus was alive called the Essenes, or the Essenes, depending on how whoever you're talking to pronounces it the Essenes who is who was living at Qumran. And they were in other villages as well. Um, but, but unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these were more of a monastic people. Uh, and really, people in modern-day scholarship look back at the Essenes and see that's probably where a lot of the early Christian monks got their ideas for how to practice their spirituality. So the Essenes were part of communities that would kind of withdraw from the religious establishment, the religious machinery. They still believed the same things that all of the Jewish followers of God believed. They practiced them, though, by, by 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 intensely studying, living in community, and studying the Old Testament books, particularly the prophets, because they wanted to be able to recognize when the Messiah showed up. They felt like that was what everything was building towards, is is God is one day going to send His Son into the world, the Messiah, to save us, to rescue us from our condition. That God is sending someone, and we want to be ready to recognize when He shows up. What's He going to do? What's He going to say? Who's He going to be? What's He going to look like? And that's why Isaiah and, and the other Old Testament books were so important for their community. And they were studying all these things. The uh, ancient Greek philosopher Philo wrote about the Essenes in one of his ancient histories. And here's what it says about them on the next screen. So they were exceptionally virtuous people who lived in villages. They refrained from animal sacrifices and avoided cities. They had common meals and whatever belonged to each belonged to all. They had no implements of war and they rejected slavery. That kind of sounds like somebody we know from Scripture. Now, there's, there's no scholarship that supports Jesus having been a part of the SN movement. Uh, that's not a thing that, that w- people would accept. Jesus wasn't an SN. Uh, he was m- the Messiah, the Son of God, who everyone was looking for. However, there is scholarship to support that Jesus was familiar with, probably uh, influenced with and by uh, this movement because of what we know about John the Baptist, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Uh, His mother and Mary were sisters and they were born about the same time. Uh, And we know that John was born into a family of religious leaders. His father was a, a temple official. And so John the Baptist is living a life of a religious leader and we meet him again as an adult. And this is how Mark describes John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist for food. He ate locusts and wild honey. That's weird. It's is not right. Well, among the scrolls that they found at Qumran, every book of the Old Testament except for one, Esther wasn't found there yet. Uh, They've also found commentaries on all the books of the Bible. And then they find scrolls that are about how to live as a part of the SN community, what the community uh, regulations were like. And it sounds a lot like this. An emphasis on baptism, an emphasis on repentance, an emphasis on um, uh, getting rid of material things to live a monastic sort of life. And so there are arguments to be made that John was probably a part of this movement and, and of course, knew Jesus very well. In fact, the place where John baptizes Jesus, called Bethany beyond the Jordan, is about five miles away from the caves at Qumran, just north of the Dead Sea. And so we see all of these people gathered together, intensely studying who is the Messiah? What's he going to look like? What's he going to say? What's he going to care about and do? And then Jesus comes on the scene and he starts doing all of these things that they've been reading about for generations and generations. The book of Isaiah, here are just a few of them. 7.14 said that he would be born a virgin and Jesus was. Born of a virgin. In 9.7 and 11.10, Messiah would be born in the line of David and Jesus was. 42.1, he would be anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, that to us doesn't seem like a, a massive prophecy, but in the Old Testament, that wasn't a, a thing that you would say about people, that they would be anointed by the Holy Spirit. That was a very unique prophecy for the Old Testament. And basically what it meant is when the Messiah come, you would see him doing things that only could be done by the power of God. That that, that people would be healed, that people would be raised back to life, which Jesus does. Uh, That the oppressed would be set free, that the sick would be made whole. And you see these things happening in Jesus because of the power of the Holy Spirit. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Scott preached on Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would be tortured and killed. And that's what Jesus taught as he was doing his ministry, predicting and foretelling how that was going to go. And so all of the people are, are, are in this community are seeing that Jesus is doing these things and his, his following begins to grow. And it's interesting to me that when Jesus preaches his very first public sermon in Luke chapter 4, he doesn't, he doesn't do any of this stuff. He, doesn't, he, could, he had the Isaiah scroll in his hands. He could have turned to Isaiah chapter 4 verse 14 or 7 and 14 and said, born of a virgin, that's kind of hard to pull off and, and Jesus did it. And he didn't do that or any of these. He specifically chose Isaiah 61 to describe who he was, not because of his credentials, not why you should believe in him as a a matter of proof or evidence, but in Isaiah 61 that these are the people who the Messiah would go and reach Go and share with his love and his power that the oppressed, the captives, the sick, the hurting, that that's who the Messiah is going to pay attention to and spend time with. And Jesus says, that's why I'm with all of these people. That's why I'm with the people that other religious figures aren't spending time with, because that's who God wants to reach. That's who God is concerned about and cares about. And you should recognize the Messiah, not because of his credentials, but because of the compassion that he has for people that nobody else is paying attention to. And that's the nature of Jesus's ministry. It's a, a theological term that the theologians call incarnational ministry. Incarnational ministry, really simply from the Latin carne meaning flesh. So it's ministry in the flesh that God we sing about this at Christmas time, God incarnate." God showed up in the flesh. He came in person because you can't save something you're not willing to become. God God says that that in order to save people, he's going to have to become a person. And that ministry continues. That attitude about how to reach people is still as true as it was back then. That in order to reach people in our time, in our context, we, the church, have to be willing to become the people we want to reach. And that that gets taught about in the New Testament. So Jesus exemplifies this, God incarnate, and he says, this is the ministry that I'm starting for you, the church, my followers, to become like the people you want to reach. And then Paul, when they're planting the first churches around the Greek region, Paul actually writes about this to the church at Corinth. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. He says, "'Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like the Jews to bring the Jews to Christ. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ.' Verse 22 says, when I am with those who are weak, I share their weaknesses, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. And this is how he finishes verse 22. Let's read this together out loud. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. How how would you say we're doing at that as a culture these days? Does that sound like what we're up to? Trying to find common ground? I would say we're failing massively at this central part of what it means to live a life following Jesus' example, who came not to stand on one side of an issue and lob bombs over at the other side of the issue, but to stand in the middle and to find common ground with everybody to become like the people he wanted to reach so that they can be loved and saved, and that's the ministry of the church. We're not called, as, as God's followers, to stand on one side and to ridicule and criticize another. That's not what it's like to follow Jesus. His example, his ministry is incarnational. To get right into the middle of people's lives, to get messy, to, 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 to find it difficult, and it is really, really hard. But to reach the people we want to reach, we have to become like them. This is a picture from our last vacation Bible school. For a week every year at Hope, we make ourselves, every single one of us makes ourselves like kids because we want to reach kids. Every Wednesday night, we make ourselves like students because we want to reach students. And on and on it goes. You have to make yourself like the people you want to reach. And that's really, really hard. That's not the easiest way to live life. It it certainly wasn't easy for uh, Detective John Kimball, rough and ready Arnold Schwarzenegger, to become like a kindergartner to save kindergartners. Let's watch
0: supposed to mean. Mrs. Hadley's a lot better than you. Is she? Is she really? My mom's a teacher in the school, and she's a lot better than you, too. Great. On Monday nights, my mom tutors, and Mrs. Quinn takes care me, and she's better than you, too. Great. And freaking my swimming teacher. And Gus, my t-ball coach, are better than you, too. I really appreciate your honesty. Do you happen to know someone that is not better than me? I don't know that many people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a mess. It's an absolute mess when you're willing to get into the thick of it with somebody's life or with a people that you don't necessarily understand that you're trying to make yourself like. And and I wonder if you've ever felt that way before. If if you resonate with that sentiment that that no matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try, no matter what effort you put into something, maybe it's even something that you felt like God's calling you to do, and there's still someone somewhere who's shaking their head and disappointed in you. You could have tried harder. Or maybe you say that to yourself. I could have done better. I could have worked harder, I could have practiced that sermon one more time, which I said to myself yesterday before the five o'clock service. Where, Where does that come from? That, that feeling that, that no matter how hard we work and how hard we try, it just doesn't seem to be enough. That we have this performance-based culture that is this endless cycle of thinking that one day I'll actually feel like I did work hard enough, that I did do a good job, that somebody will be satisfied with the effort I put into something, and that day will never come. You will always be in a cycle of performance that says, I'm trying to earn and work and, and, and do my best, and somebody somewhere will always be dissatisfied, and it might even be you. This is the thing that Jesus confronts, our way of seeing the world. And, and there are some contrasts that Jesus offers relating to the book of Isaiah and the way that God talked about the nature of Jesus' ministry different from how we understand things. The first contrast Jesus offers is incarnation versus effort. Incarnation versus effort. You see, our, our world tells us that the harder you try, the better of a person you are. Unless you work really, really hard, uh, then, then you're not good enough. And you should have done better. And Jesus says, that's actually not how I want my ministry to happen. That's not what I want my church to be thinking about. The question that God is not asking you is what more could you do for me? The question God's actually asking you is how much closer could you get to the people you're trying to reach out to? In relationship. The nature of incarnation. There's a Christian philosopher um, uh, a couple generations ago named Evelyn Underhill who um, wrote, and it's a little bit of a wordy quote, so I'm going to take it slow. It was written in 1911, but this is how she describes the nature of this, this contrast, this pull between the way the world sees things and the way that God sees things. We mostly spend our lives conjugating three verbs, to want, to have, and to do, forgetting that none of these verbs have any ultimate significance except so far as they are transcended by and include in the fundamental verb to be. To be, that, that's the thing that God wants from you and for you. To know that in your life, if you want to reach people, it's not a question of how much more do I have to do for those people, it's how much closer could I be myself with them, in relationship, in community. Jesus uh, illustrates this in in, in something that he does in his life. So in John chapter 5, we have this great story of Jesus and and an instance of him doing a miraculous Holy Spirit-type healing. It says in John 5 that it was the Sabbath day, which means that it's a day for uh, religious activity, religious machinery, for, for worship, for uh, contemplation, for rest, for sacrifice, all these things that you were expected to do as a member of uh, the Jewish community, and Jesus isn't doing any of that. Jesus is actually outside of the temple in a place called the Pool of Bethesda near the Sheep Gate, and I'm excited because, again, I get to go there and see this stuff come to life. Jesus is walking along, and, and the Pool of Bethesda, it says in John 5, is really where the, the city of Jerusalem kind of contains its sick people. They were were kept there uh, and it was a way for them to be out of the way, to be marginalized and not to get in everybody else's way. So a lot of sick people. And Jesus is just walking through this crowd and being with the crowd of people who are sick. And he sees a man who's been lame since he was born, and he walks up to him and he says, you pick up your mat and walk, you're healed. Your sins are forgiven, and the man does. Now, you probably be saying, well, that's, that's Jesus doing something. Jesus did healing for that person. And that's what the Pharisees who approached Jesus later said, you can't do stuff on the Sabbath. You can't heal on the Sabbath. That's against religious law. And Jesus argues back and he says this in John five nineteen: I tell you the truth, The son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. So in this instance, what Jesus is actually saying is, all I was doing was being myself around people who were sick. And I saw that God was healing this person, and so I was present for them, and God worked through me to heal them. But it was God who did the healing. And that's true for us. That if you are called to reach a certain group of people whether it's people who are sick or in prison or students or people who you coach, who are athletes, whoever it is that you're being around, the nature of ministry is presence, just being there, showing up. And i putting no expectations on what you might do for them, but waiting to see what God might do through you in their lives, simply by being who you are around them talking with um, somebody on our staff this last week about uh, a friend of theirs who's kind of in the last stages of a really rough battle with cancer. And um, I've experienced that in my own life too with friends. And so we were talking about how hard it gets when you feel like you you just don't know what else to do. Have you ever felt that way for somebody else who's going through a tough time? I just don't know what else to do. I've gone through the list of things I know to do. And then I don't know what to say. You know, there's just nothing left to say. And so we began then talking about, well, what would it be like to just be closer to those people who are hurting? And we realized pretty quickly, that's actually a a lot harder. It's easier to come up with a list of things to do and a list of things to say than it is to figure out a way to incarnate yourself, to, to adopt that person's weakness, their brokenness, their pain, to enter into it with them. That's really hard to do. But that's the way that Jesus calls us to minister to people. That's how he ministered to people. And, and, and that's the way he says your life is going to bear fruit for him. So the second contrast that Jesus offers is the difference between abiding and earning. Our, our performance-based culture tells us that, that, that whatever you get, you have to earn. You have to work really hard for anything that you get. And I'm not saying that in, in certain instances that's not actually true, but where it's definitely not true is in, in, in terms of our identity. That, that we apply this sense of, of earning, of performing, to try and prove who we are to the world around us. Who would I be if it weren't for the list of things that I can do, we tell ourselves. And then we try to say that same thing to God. We try to earn our identity with God who has actually said, you you already have one. Last week, Pastor Scott preached on this. It's throughout the entire book of Isaiah. You cannot earn the things that God has given you for free which includes your salvation when you put your trust in Jesus. It includes your forgiveness. It includes your love that you get from God for free. And it includes your new identity, your new life in Christ. That's an identity you have as a loved, adopted son and daughter of the Father who loves you. And you can't earn it no matter what you do. But we still keep trying. And what Jesus is saying through his ministry is stop trying to earn the thing I want to give you for free. I just want you to be the loved son and daughter that you are around people who don't know that that's who they really are. So Jesus teaches on this in John chapter 15. Let's read this out loud together. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them will produce fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing getting to be the fall and I love going to the apple orchards with my with my kids and my wife and we have a great time. You don't you don't see an apple tree. The branches on the apple tree don't just sit there and they're like I got to squeeze out an apple today. If I if I don't then I'm not good enough. And how am I going to try to get that apple? That's not how it works. That's not how living systems work. The fruit comes by how connected the branch of the tree is to the the source of its own life. And what Jesus is saying is that in your life, you're not going to be effective because of how hard you try and how much you work. That's what the world tells you and it's a lie. You're going to be effective. Your life will bear fruit. You will see people's lives around you changed by how connected you get to God. How close can you get to God in relationship? And the closer you get to God and relationship, the more your own sense of self and identity, the love you experience freely from Jesus Christ will fill you up. And then if you incarnate yourself around other people who don't know that yet, as the love of God starts to pour out of you and overflow you because of how much you abide, live in the blessedness of Jesus' life, it's just going to spill out on other people. Your life is going to bear fruit and that fruit is just going to fall off and the people who are hungry are going to take it up. That's the nature of what it's like to do ministry for Jesus. Takes a lot of the pressure off, actually. Because the question God doesn't want you to answer is, How can I try harder? How can I do more? How can I work harder for Jesus? That's not the question. How much closer can you get to God? And the answer to that is every day more. There's no end to how much closer you can get to God. You'll never run out of Him. There will never be an end to the experience of being close to God in a relationship through Jesus to experiencing more of his love and more of his grace and more of his forgiveness every single day. And the closer you get to him and the closer you get to other people in relationship, they are going to start to experience something different about who God says they really are. There's a a song from a a bunch of years ago by Derek Webb called Take to the World. Talks about this. And we put put that song underneath a slideshow of some hopesters in the last year who have really bought into this idea of Not just doing more things for God, trying harder, but becoming the people God wants to see saved and reached. And so as you watch this slideshow and listen to the lyrics of the song, I would encourage you to, to ask yourself and ask God not how much more could you do, but who can you get closer to so that they can experience the love God offers. Let's watch.
0: Go in peace to love and to serve, and let your ears ring long with what you have heard. And made a bread on your tongue, leave a tray. Take a lot of
1: keeps getting repeated in that song says no you must become what you want to save because that's still the way he takes to the world that's the way God took to the world in the person of Jesus becoming a person to save all people that's the way he's calling the church to take to the world to become the people we want to reach with his love and we're reminded of that every time we come to the table of communion and we remember that uh, it was at the last supper that he took bread with his disciples and he broke it and he said this is my body broken for you and after his supper, in the same way, he took the cup, and he said, This is the cup of the new covenant, shed for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you drink this cup and eat this bread, do this in remembrance of me. Let's stand together and pray the prayer Jesus taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses,